Thank you for listening to the podcasts from Life Central Church. For more information or to visit one of our locations, go to lifecentralchurch.org.uk. For those of you who we've not met, my name is Laura. Uh, and I get to get to be with you guys in whatever location you're watching this in. I get to hang out with you, which is wonderful uh, today. And uh, we're, we're going into our third week of the Google in God series. We have our question, what is God really like? And we're going to be spending a bit of time on this today. Um, it may be that you're here in the room or in one of our locations, and you're actually not someone who believes in Jesus. You wouldn't say that you're a Christian necessarily. And if that's the case, you are so, so, so welcome. Uh, but when you're in that place and you're kind of going, well, do you know, I'm on, right at the beginning of a faith journey. I'm not really sure what I think about God. And many people who now do believe in God in this room may have been in this place themselves. You start with two basic questions. The first question is this. Is there a God? And you try and find, hopefully, either a yes or no answer to that question. And if you land on yes as your answer, there's a second question that follows that that is, I think I would say, equally important, and it is this question. Then what is God really like? If there is a God, who are they? Who is he? Is this a God I want a relationship with? Is this a God I can trust? Is this a God that I want to follow? And even at the beginning of your journey, you have this question, but for so many of us who have been followers of Jesus for a really long time, this is actually still a really important question because the questions that we have about our life and our faith really are stemmed back to this question of, is this a God that I can trust? If you've been around Life Central for the last few weeks, you may have heard or seen that a number of the team here went to Spring Harvest a few weeks ago. Um, Leon was there doing some grown-up stuff. No one wants to know about the grown-up stuff. But the really exciting stuff happened in the kids and youth ministry. And uh, in the youth ministry, there was about 700 kids in the room, young people, sorry. And um, they all were asked to write down a question. If you could ask something of God, what would it be? And I wanted to show you some of the answers that came up. So uh, it's, we're, going in, we're going in hard, first of all. I just want to warn you on that. Dear God, sorry, did God make my grandma have a stroke? Does he love her? Did he think about me and my family being sad? That's question number one. Next one. If God exists... Why is there still racism and bullying and war around the world? Number three. Why do some prayers not get answered? Number four. Why does God let us suffer with mental health if he loves us? Number five. This one's not really a question. It's more of an opinion, just to warn you. Um, is the Bible sexist? And they've made tick boxes. Yes. Does, does God give me reasons? Two tick boxes. No. Uh, now, I don't personally agree with that, but that is their opinion. Uh, and they put these, these questions in uh, to the team to answer them, but every single one of those questions isn't actually about the circumstance they're in. The question is about the God behind the circumstance. What is God really like? Why would he let this happen? Why do I find myself in this position? And so then what happens? As you begin, when you want to answer the question, what is God really like, you begin to search for evidence. So maybe you look in the world around you um, and you see, well, there's a lot of good things that happen in our world. There's a lot of love and a lot of um, really positive things. There's also some really rubbish, painful stuff. And you look around and you think, well, what's God really like? 
Why would he let that happen? Why, why is that war going on? Why is that circumstance a thing? And so maybe you do exactly what this series is called and you Google God and you go on to Google and you look for the opinions of people who are so much more intelligent than I am. And you find things like this from Stephen Fry. <clears throat> why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? Or maybe a quote like this from Richard Dawkins. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sodomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Oh, I had to concentrate then. Uh, now, that is not my opinion. That is not our opinion. But this is the stuff you find. So what's God really like? Well, maybe we go to the source then. Let's look in the Bible. And I've had friends who start reading the Bible and go to the, the first half, the Old Testament, and go... There's a lot of sheep death. Does God really dislike sheep? Like, what, what's his deal there? And we will get to that. Um, or then you read passages like this uh, in the book of Exodus. So this is Exodus 11, 4 to 6. And it says, Moses has announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die, and then a loud wail will rise through the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has ever heard before or will ever hear again. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> um, and so as we ask this question, what is God really like? Actually, the challenge is twofold for us, even asking this question. Because as we begin to address this, and we will talk about that stuff, there's some things we have to acknowledge. And the first is this. I am a human being, allegedly, uh, trying to work out the nature and complexity of, a uh, of an uncreated God. I am not physically capable of ever fully understanding who God is, what he's doing in a situation, and what he's about. So there is a limit in as much as I can understand as a human being anyway. So that is our first challenge. But the second challenge is this, that God's character isn't revealed by our immediate context, but by the story he's building through the covenants and the promises that he keeps. And so we're going to spend some time unpacking that story that I just read today. Uh, we're going to spend some time in that Exodus story. And the reason for that is that when you take that story in its fullest context, actually, the whole of that story that that's taken from is all about people finding out what God is really like. It's a nation asking the question, who is this God? What is he like? And what is the story that he's trying to build in our world? So we're going to go there together. Um, that, that story in Exodus that I read, it's, if you don't know, it's the last of 10 plagues that happened. Some of you who have been around church for a while may be familiar with the story of Moses and the 10 plagues. For those of you who aren't or haven't, don't worry, we're going to go for it all together. But that's the last one. Uh, and, and we get to this, these plagues, but the, the, the start of the story is, is something... Uh, that happens a long time before that, a long, long time ago. Uh, there's a nation called Israel. 
And Israel lands in the, uh, live in a land called Canaan. And God uh, has a covenant, the word that I used just now, or a promise with this group of people. And he says, we're going to partner together. And I'm going to show you what I'm really like. And we're going to show the world what we are really like by writing this story, this beautiful story in this world that I've created. So God has this covenant with this group of people. Now, in Canaan, there's a famine. And so the people of Israel become refugees and move to Egypt, and they settle there. And they're there for a really long time. They're there for 430 years. And they, they grow while they're there. They, they do really well for themselves. And all this time uh, that, that they're there, it becomes a little bit complicated because the culture in Egypt is really different to the story that God's wanting to write in the world. You see, the story that they tell in Egypt... Uh, it's one of excess and one of more and one of luxury at the expense of anyone or anything that stands in their way. You see, over time, over that 430 years, as you can imagine, uh, the kings died and there were new pharaohs who forgot why the Israelites were in that land. And the pharaoh's job in that culture was to reflect their many gods. And Pharaoh was the representation of those many gods to his people and the culture that those gods were going to create and the story they were going to tell in this world. And so for God, a God who had made this partnership with Israel, the problem for him was twofold. Firstly, the telling of who these gods were, what the God who created the world was like, was totally different to the one that God had. But also as a result of that, the story that was being played out in the world was totally the opposite of the story that God wanted to create in the world that he had made. And so this Egyptian story of culture, the story that they were playing out in the world, as I said just now, it's one of power and of might and of more at the expense of absolutely anyone who got in their way. Where the weak in that culture and in that society were used to create luxury for other people. Where the rich and the poor Sorry, uh, where the poor and the vulnerable were crushed, where the refugee and the elderly were pushed aside. The vulnerable were there to make the rich richer and their lives more comfortable, where the poor weren't rescued, which is the story that God wanted to tell in the world, but instead they were excluded and they were exploited into servitude so that the rich and the powerful could become more rich. They were gods who were removed. There were gods who were not compassionate. There were gods who used their power to crush. They were not loyal. They did not keep promises or covenants. They were not personal. They did not communicate. They did not care. Unless you were Pharaoh, who embodied all of these gods to his people in Egypt and lived out that story through the world. And at that time, the culture of Egypt was incredibly powerful. There's a, a really great quote. Um, and it's this. If you see a culture where life is cheap and the sacrifices others are acceptable to sustain your own obsession with pleasure and entertainment and wealth you have the wrong story. And I don't know whether you sat there, and as I said, some of the things that describe the Egyptian culture, it felt a little bit uncomfortable. Because actually, this isn't an old story. This is a current story. Not only in our world, but in our nation. There are two stories that are played out, the story of God and the story of might and more. And if you are engaging in this today and you are a follower of Jesus, wherever you're watching this from, we need to make some decisions about the story that we are wanting to tell in this world through our lives. 
But back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw all these Israelites around him and felt really, really threatened. There were absolutely loads of them. And so he was like, in this kind of feeling of oppression and, and oppressing the sort of immigrants in, in his nation, he's right. What if they rise up and come against us? I'm, I'm going to do something here. So he decided to put all of the Israelites into slavery. He took away their resources, up their quotas, and made their lives really difficult. But they still grew because God had this partnership with them. And so he said, okay, new plan. Midwives. When baby boys are born in the Israelite, I just, I just want you to kill them. As soon as they're born, kill them. And the midwives, thankfully, were a little bit uncomfortable with this, as you can imagine. Um, and so they were like, oh, no, sorry, we just didn't get there in time. We, just, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't manage it, sorry. And so Pharaoh said, okay, new plan. When baby boys are born to Israelites, just throw them into the Nile. Just chuck them in. Let, let, let them drown. Now, you can imagine that this is not the story that God is wanting to create either. A God of love would not stand for this. And I think it's actually, we're going to talk about the plagues in a moment, but I think it's no accident that the very first plague is that the Nile turns to blood. I think God says, you know what? Let me show you where your story will lead. And so we have that as our first plague. But what's fascinating, what's more fascinating than that, is why Pharaoh chose to do that. You see, there was something in that culture, uh, we don't really have it now, uh, but there was something really special about the oldest boy in a family. And there's a word called, a word called the Bahor. And he will be the Bahor. And the, the idea of this was that he would stand between his parents and his younger siblings, and he would translate the values and the culture and the faith from generation to generation. And so his parents would say, this is our story. This is our people's story. This is our faith. This is our God's story. And he would go, okay, right, so how does this translate to live in the world now? Let me give you an example. When I was really little, my parents said to me, don't talk to strangers. I was like, okay. And I didn't have anything with my name on, just in case a stranger would know my name, and all those kinds of things. And there would see posters, I don't remember, stranger danger. I said, do you remember those? Everywhere, stranger, and if a stranger came up to you in the park, you were supposed to shout, stranger danger, at them, which was terrifying. Um, but nonetheless, that's what I was taught. Now, as I got older, things like Facebook came into the world, and that changed a little. Don't add anybody you do not know on Facebook, especially if you can't see their profile picture. That was the thing, hey? Like, if you can't see their picture, it's not really them, so you don't add them. And so it translates. Today now, if you're a young person, you're gaming and you're, like, playing all over, like, people all over the world who you don't know, you don't, you've never met them before. And so that value translates again. There are report buttons. There's online safety. There's boundaries around, like, what is, isn't, isn't acceptable details to share online. There's your own personal boundaries about the kind of conversations you're willing to have online. And so young people are taught again in a different way this value of stranger danger. And so it translates through the generations. And this was the job of the Bahá'u, to translate what God, the God, story that God was writing and what that looks like in our world today. And Pharaoh knew this. And so he knew if you kill the firstborn, you kill the culture, and you kill the story. And so, as we get into this, as we think about the context that this is in, we remember again that God's character isn't revealed by our immediate context or the immediate context that we live in, but through, through the story he's building and the covenants that he keeps. See, the story moves to here in Exodus 2. Years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and the cry rose up to God. 
God heard the groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Um, If you've been around church uh, for a little while, our church particularly in the last 18 months, uh, you may know that Andy and I became parents. And as a parent now, there there are words and phrases that I understand the meaning of I had no idea about before. Before, I lived this life of bliss and heard things like, bedtime routine, and it meant nothing to me. Now I'm a parent, what I realise is that children go to bed every single day at exactly the same time. I hadn't really thought about this. And you think that the bedtime routine stops when you shut the bedroom door? (laughs) That's when the fun begins. What I've realised is you shut your bedroom door, and I know now in my house the quietest routes up and down my stairs, and I have two flights of stairs in my house. I know where I have to wiggle to get up. Andy and I will sit watching television in the living room beneath the kids' bedrooms with the volume on the lowest one because we don't want to stimulate any mental activity. And so we'll be whispering to each other and going through the channels like this. And then some people, some people think it is acceptable to close a car door loudly between 7 and 8 in the evening on our street. Those people. And so there's this bang. And what that starts in our house... The dog. So the dog then hears the cars. We've got a medium-sized dog, Big Bark, and I have developed something called the whisper shout. So the dog's like, and I'm there with the dog. Archie, shut up. Shush. Stop it. Stop it. You're supposed to be on our team. Shush. And the dog's going off, and we're trying to listen, and eventually the kids go to sleep. And then when they're asleep, it literally happened last night. The kids are asleep. We're watching TV. We're in the middle of an amazing show. Andy, did you hear something? Did you, did you hear something upstairs? What is it? <laughs> Go and check on them. Go and check on them. So then we're creeping up the stairs using my pre-planned route. And there's this like tension between, I really hope they're okay and I want to check, but please, Jesus, don't let me wake them up. And you're trying to like work that out. And then you come back down and they're fine. But when they're asleep and you hear them cry out in a heartbeat, you are there and you're at their bedside and you're cuddling them and you have your arms around them and you are covered in the snot or the vomit or the wee or the poo or whatever it was that made them cry out. It's not a thing. You're just there and you're with them and you want to make sure that they are okay because you have a relationship with them. You know, when God hears the cry of his children, he knows when the time to act is. And I don't know if you're in a situation today where you're waiting for God to do something. What is this God really like? Why is he not acting? Why is he not doing something? God is sat there (laughs) with his TV on pause, just listening, and knows when the time to act is, and he will get into your mess. He will stand alongside you. He will wrap his arms around you, and he will say, I am here. This is a God who stands against oppression, who fights for the poor. A God of love who will not back down on this world, regardless of what our, how our immediate context might appear. And so God goes to this guy, Moses. Um, and he used to live in the palace of the Egyptians. It's a really long story. And um, he, gets, he gets to Moses and says, hey, Moses, you need to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, mm, really? He's like, yeah. You need to. He's like, okay, fine. Who am I going to say that you are? Because the Israelites, your people, they think that those Egyptian gods, when I say God to them, that's what they're going to think. 
God doesn't have a particularly helpful answer. He just sort of says, well, I am who I am. And Moses is like, cheers. So he goes off. And then a little bit later, he says, God, dude, I'm going to need something more specific. And God gives him his name. I am Yahweh. And I'm going to show you what I'm really like. You see, God's character isn't revealed by our immediate context, but by the covenants, but the, by the story he's building through the covenants that he keeps. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, okay, you're writing this story in the world. This is not a good story. This is not the story of God. You need to let God's people go. And you know, God always gives a way out. He always gives a chance, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. And Moses says, no. Oh, sorry, Pharaoh says, no. And Moses says, okay, I'm going to tell you where this is going to go. So this is what, um, this is in Exodus, this is what God says to Moses. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, my behor. I command you to let my son go so he could worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. The whole, there's a whole thing to come before we get to the place where we started this, this, this time together. But right at the beginning, God says to Pharaoh, dude, if you're sticking with your story, let me tell you where this is going to end. Let me tell you where this is going. And Pharaoh says, no, my story is one of power and might at the expense of the poor. And I'm not changing it. And then it all kicks off. We then have the 10 plagues. And so these are the 10 plagues. The first one I, I mentioned before, the Nile, the, the water turns to blood. There's frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils and sores, hail, which, by the way, had fire inside it. Crazy. Locusts, there's a plague of darkness. And then where we landed, uh, the death of the firstborn. But all of these only happened to the Egyptians. Now, you might look at this list and say, what is God really like? I mean, this doesn't seem very nice. This doesn't seem very kind. And the stories within this, like we could, this could preach for weeks, like each one of these plagues represented one of the Egyptian gods. Again and again, God says to Pharaoh, every time after each one of these, will you change your story? Will you let my people go? And Pharaoh says, no. But then you might think, well, why doesn't God just zap them out? Like if he's all powerful, like he could just... Like darkness, I heard, I heard this on, someone say this, I thought it was brilliant. If, all the, if the Egyptians can't see, then surely the Israelites could just sneak out when they're not looking. I mean, that's, that's the obvious solution here. Do we have to go through all of this? But here's the deal. God wanted to give them a chance of out again and again and again. And this was not just about getting his people out of Egypt. This was about getting the story of Egypt out of the world and so we end on our 10th our plague. And this is it again. In Exodus 11. Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, at midnight tonight I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die and every family in Egypt from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die and then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has heard before or will ever hear again. You see, this is a God who heard the cry. This is a God who will not rest until the story in his world is changed. However, there is always a way out. So God says, okay, this is what's coming. But if you want to write a different story, let me show you how to do it. I want you to take a lamb, 
Now this, this is why there's a lot of lamb death, by the way, in, in the first half of the Bible. Take a lamb. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb. Now, this act in itself, um, sheep, rams, were considered sacred in Egyptian culture because that represented their kind of core god, Amun-Ra, the sun god. And so even this sacrificing of the lamb is a really symbolic way of going, I'm living, I'm killing the story. I'm, I'm changing the story that we're telling in this world. We are not standing for oppression and injustice uh, for the weakest in our communities anymore. Take the blood of that lamp, post it around, uh, paint it around your doorpost, and anybody in that household will be saved. And so God was forming a covenant with his people to say, if you choose to write your story with me, we're going to write a different story in this world, one of justice and love. Don't look at your immediate circumstance, but instead, this is a covenant I'm making with you, and this is a covenant that I will keep. And this act, this ritual, this was the first festival known as Passover. That's what it became. And they remembered it every single year. And this covenant changed shape a little. Because over time, years later, Jesus chose the festival of Passover to be the time when he entered Jerusalem. When he went in to die on a cross. Where he chose that moment to take a stand against Roman rule. A culture of greed and luxury and excess at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable with a leader whose slogan was Caesar is Lord. And Jesus went in and acted as that sacrificial lamb. His blood was shed as he died on the cross and said, anybody who wants to opt into my story, who wants to say that they will partner with me, I want to write a new story in them and through them in this world. In this moment, God put an upgrade on his covenant, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And so we have Jesus, the Passover lamb. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus isn't just the lamb. Jesus acts as the behor. And so he stands with one hand in God the Father, one hand in ours, and says, let me show you what God is really like. Let me live out the person of God in this world. And if you want to know what God is really like, look at the person of Jesus. Look how he treats the refugee. Look how he treats the poor, the oppressed, the child, the, the lonely, the elderly in his community. Look who he spends time with and who he loves. That is what God is really like. Now, if you're uh, watching this in the room or in the location and you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't believe in God, this at this moment, you get to look around at people and be a little bit judgy. That's okay. You can have your moment right now. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're listening today, then I want you to lean in because we have a challenge. Here's the challenge. If people are asking the question, what is God really like? They should be able to look at your lives and see that. You act as that behor, standing with one hand in God the Father and one hand on the rest of the world and saying, look what God is really like in how I love, in how I spend my money, in how I spend my time, in how I treat that really difficult person that does my head in, in, in how I am at work, in how I am with my kids. You are that representation. You are the story of God being told in this earth. And if people were to look at your life, what would they say God is really like? In your best and in your worst moments, and we won't always get it right, I definitely don't, but they should be able to look at your life and answer that question, how will we bridge the gap? But then there will be people here today as well watching, and maybe you're not quite sure where you are at with God. 
Or maybe your circumstance right now is just really dire and really difficult. And I'm sure that if you told me your circumstance, I would probably say, yeah, no, do you know what? I'm not sure what God's doing either right now. But if that's you today, I would actually in a moment love to give an opportunity to pray for you. But what I would say to you is do not cling to your circumstance. Cling to the character of God. I would say in the last few years, I feel that there's stuff that God has promised me, but it seems like everything that is happening has moved in the opposite direction of that promise. And in those moments, the only thing that I can do is cling to who God says he is, to what he's really like. This is the God who hears the cry and knows the time to act. Cling to him. Could I ask if you're able that you'd stand to your feet, please? In a moment, I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and and give an opportunity for prayer, um, whether you're in the room or in a location. And what I would say is this is not a response. This is not an opportunity to respond just for those who believe in Jesus. This is open to anybody, wherever you're at on your faith journey. But I believe when we pray, stuff happens. And so if, if you, for, to help those guys out who wouldn't normally necessarily respond, if I could ask everybody to close their eyes for now, that would be great. And in a moment, I'd love to invite you that if you are in the middle of a really difficult circumstance, follower of Jesus or not, that you just think, you know what, I could actually use some prayer in that because I do not know what God is doing. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And then what I'm going to do is just ask a few people to look, to look around, look, ask people to look around and then come and put their hands on your shoulder if, if you're comfortable with that and for them to pray. And they're not allowed to ask you any questions. They're not allowed to ask you what's going on. We just want to stand with you in that circumstance and be a physical representation of God being with you in it too. So if you've got a circumstance at the moment, something going on in your life or in the life of someone you love, and you just think, I don't get where God is at in this context. I don't know what he's doing. Would you raise your hand for me either in the room or in your locations or on, at home online? Just pop your hand up. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. That's so great. That's so vulnerable. Thank you. And if you're comfortable with prayer, I'm going to ask you to keep your hand up. And just for people who haven't responded, to look around. See if there's somebody with their hand up. And I just want a couple of people, just maybe two, to place a hand on their shoulder and begin to pray. And all I want you to pray is, God, will you reveal yourself? That's the prayer. Don't ask them anything. God, would you reveal yourself? And if you're not praying for anyone and you've not got your hands on anyone at the moment, let's just pray. If you're a praying type, let's go for it. Let's pray for these guys. We're just going to give a moment to this. God, I thank you that you see every hand that has responded in every location that this is being engaged in. God, you see it and you know. You know the person You know the circumstance. And God, I pray that even this week you would move in it. God, would you reveal yourself and show yourself and just show what you're doing. I thank you, God, that you are the God who hears the cry and knows the time to act. 
And I want to pray particularly, God, for people who are praying right now who aren't even sure that you exist. I pray that maybe through this situation, through this circumstance, they would know what you're really like. Amen.